morning, everybody. Wait for the old people to get seated. Our uh, text today is in Mark 15, verses 16 through 20. The soldiers took him away into the place that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. They dressed him up in purple, and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of Jews. They kept beating him on the head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling and bowing before him. After they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off him and put his own garments on him, and they let him out to crucify him. Roy, thank you for the reading of God's Word. As we come to this section of Scripture today, we can't help but realize of Mark's, that as I've referred to it as his triage gospel, written in an expeditious manner, written uh, the shortest of the synoptic gospels, meant to convey necessary information to those who were receiving it. Uh, the essential information for those that were receiving it and hearing it. We certainly will remember today, we don't remind you every week, we will certainly remember though today that this was written to believers uh, in Rome, the church in Rome. The church that would be under the emperor Nero, that's what it looks like. And that will play into this particular passage this morning. We preach expositionally here, verse by verse. But I will say that this particular message today will, is going to go in a slightly different format than we're used to seeing here. As the study came about, it became necessary to delve into some historical things, more so than we normally do, just to understand what that church in Rome was receiving when they received this gospel from Mark. We want to remember that Mark is recording the teaching or sermon of Peter. Peter is an eyewitness of the events that occurred here that he is an eyewitness to these events that we're going to talk about today. Last week, John spoke about, or he led us through the passage that talked about Jesus before Pilate. We, he spoke about the fact that Pilate during the Passover would release one of the prisoners for the Jews, the one that they chose. He had given them the option of who to release. 
We know that Jesus was one of them and that Barabbas was the other. Barabbas was an insurrectionist, a murderer. That's what he was there for. Destined for execution. Jesus, on the other hand, was the one of which Pilate himself said, I could find no fault with the man. Jesus as the only righteous one. Certainly the exact opposite of Barabbas. We could see that in the name Barabbas, that that is an interesting play on words in itself. If we were to break down that name, we would find out it means son of the father, is what his name means. It's fascinating that the people chose this insurrectionist, this murderer, to be released, this murderer who was the son of the father's name meant to be released so that the true son of the true father would go to the place of the cross. That the people willingly chose that which was ultimately and completely sinful over that which was not, had no sin whatsoever in him. That people given to their own devices will choose wrongly every time. That scene which John brought us into last week ended with the scourging of Jesus. John gave us that picture last week of what that looked like with the flagellum, right? The cat of nine tails, we might call it today, that they would, that he, that Jesus would have been over a block or over a stump and that his back would be continually flayed with this device. That skin would have been torn off of his back. It would even say in the scriptures down to the bones would be exposed. That the ground would be blood soaked around him. That he would essentially have been beaten to a pulp. Is what happens there. That most or many people do not survive the scourging itself. They don't survive the scourging to make it to the crucifixion. Yet that is where we left Jesus last night. That he, last week, that he was scourged, it says in, in verse 15 of chapter 15, and then they handed him over to be crucified. And this is where we're going to pick up the story today. But I need to delve into a little bit of history before we get any further in the passage. At this period of time in the Roman Empire, now we remember that this is written to Christians that are in Rome. This is a message that is written so that they might be able to persevere what is coming their way, that they might be able to persevere through, through, through persecution that they have, that these people that are living in Rome, they're hearing this, that they would know the things that I'm going to tell you about right now. You see, in Rome, up until about 19 or 20, 20 or 19 BC, there was what was referred to as a Roman triumph, a celebration that they would have. It would be the victorious general. Sometimes they say, they're not 100% clear on this, but the idea that if a general in battle had killed at least 5,000 of the enemies, that they would be up for this Roman triumph that would happen. And what would, 
what the Senate would vote on this, and they would say, yes, this person deserves this thing to occur. This person deserves this honor in our in the city. That they would be celebrated over this. Of what they have done to protect the empire. What they have done to protect Rome. What they have done to protect their way of life. After about 19 B.C., it no longer was available to the victorious general. It only was available to the emperor themselves, that the Senate would vote that this person, this emperor, had done this and such to protect the empire and that they would have this event. It went from being called a Roman a Roman triumph to be calling an imperial triumph. Now here's the key about this. Here are some things that we know about this event. Number one, I was going to do this to them, but I'll tell you, there's some of, some of us that are of my age and older in the, in the crowd that are here. I recommend you go and you can see an example of this in the film, in the film Ben-Hur. You will find what a Roman, uh, a Roman triumph looks like, or the idea of what it is. But what would happen is they would take this person, whether it was the general or the emperor themselves, and they would take them outside the city to a garrison that was outside the city of Rome, which would be the praetorium of a military of one of the military leaders that protected the city of Rome, and that's where this person of importance was taken. There they were, were prepared for this triumph, this triumphal entry into the city. There they would be ritually cleaned, anointed with oil, they would have brought the royal purple robe from the temple of Jupiter. It would have been placed upon the shoulders of this emperor or this military general. It was a coronation type ceremony that was given, religious in many aspects. Because this person, especially when we come to the point where it is now the emperor, which is the time frame we're living in, this person themselves, the emperor, was viewed as divine. The emperors, also referred to as Caesars, were viewed, were viewed as gods themselves. So you have this situation where this person is taken out to the praetorium outside the city of Rome, where they are ritually cleaned, anointed with oil, where they are dressed in the purple robe that had previously resided in the temple of Jupiter, a clean and pristine robe of pure purple, expensive in all aspects, gilded with gold, and symbols of the Roman Empire upon it, that these were draped over this person's shoulders, that they were then given a wreath, either of myrtle or of olive branches, that was woven that was placed upon their head. A symbol of peace and strength that they were given. The person would also be given a scepter which indicated their authority and sovereignty over the realm of the Roman Empire. This praetorium existed probably about a mile outside the city or a little bit less than that where it was located at. This emperor, this, in the previous time, the military, the military or the general would be 
put in a procession, would be in a chariot, and behind the chariot would be led prisoners that would be being taken to their execution. And they would be led into the city. This person wearing this pristine and beautiful purple robe with the garland-like wreath around their head of olive branches or myrtle branches with a scepter that showed their authority and their sovereignty over the realm, leading the prisoners behind them into the city of Rome. This procession that would come with great fanfare, with many of the city lining the streets and cheering this person on, this person they viewed as a god themselves, waving to the people as they went by, the people throwing down their adulation before them, praising them and lifting them up as the great savior or protector of the city of Rome, of the empire of Rome, this godlike person who is here, the procession through the city that would lead them past the Senate, the ones who had voted this upon them. It would be called the way, the way, the via sacra, the sacred way is what it was called. The sacred pathway upon which this person, the emperor, would trod in their chariot with the prisoners and the robe and the wreath on their head and the scepter with great fanfare, with great adulation, with great joy from those of the city. They would go past the Senate in this great spectacle and then it would end at the Temple of Jupiter is where this would go. At this point in time, there would be many sacrifices that would be offered by this person. All to the great joy of the city of Rome. Go watch Ben-Hur. Actually, you can you just YouTube it. You can look it up. Ben-Hur, Roman, uh, uh, Roman Triumph. And you can find it. It's about two minutes long. You get an idea of what it looked like. But this is what happens in a in the in the imperial triumph, the Roman triumph. What, what this this whole thing that goes on, this amazing event for this person who is no god at all, this person that the people themselves worship, this person that the believers in Rome would know, or will soon know, that if they don't burn incense and say that this person, the emperor, is God, that they themselves may be executed, tossed to, tossed to the animals uh, in the Colosseum, perhaps sewn into a bag with a wild dog and thrown into the river, Right? that this is what is going to happen to them. This person that they have to recognize as divine. This person that went through this whole event that was dressed up in the regalia, made to look divine, as a shining example of what it is like to be a divine person. Godlike. That's what we see in Rome. These people in Rome, these Christian followers in Rome, would have known what this was like because they had probably seen this happen with Nero himself. They had probably witnessed these events 
or had been around the events when he came through the city from the praetorium, dressed as he was, with the wreath, with the scepter, with the robe, with the train of perhaps prisoners behind him, past the Senate to the Temple of Jupiter where sacrifices were made in his honor. That's our setup. Perhaps you're already seeing the relationship that we have here. Now back to where we're at. We had spoken last week about the scourging of Jesus. I would argue with you that this himself was the ritual cleansing that he went through. I would argue that as he was leaned over or laid over and chained down or tied down to that stump, that as the blows were raining down upon him, as he was being ritually cleansed of the sin for man. He did not get cleansed like the emperor or the general would have been, cleaned and anointed with oil, but a cleansing nonetheless. We remember that he became sin for us, although there was no sin in him. They took him and they took him from there next to the temple, probably, and they took him to the praetorium, which is there, uh, which is probably the fortress Antonia, what it's referred to, which sits next to the temple in Jerusalem. Interesting that they took him to a praetorium, which is where they took the emperor to, a praetorium. Interesting that this place where he's taken is inside the city and not outside the city. But I think we will see that this is a triumph nonetheless. In fact, a triumph unlike any other that has ever been seen or ever will be seen again. A fanfare of a different sort an image of a different sort, but true nonetheless. A ceremony stooped in imagery, or steeped in imagery. We can't help but remember that they did choose to release Barabbas an insurrectionist, a murderer, so that this one that was without sin, that Pilate himself could find no fault in, would be the one led to crucifixion. When he is led into the praetorium, after the beating, he the chances that he could see or not are probably slim to none. His face is probably swollen. He is a bloody mess by any stretch of the imagination. It says there in verse 16, it says they called together the whole Roman cohort, somewhere in the neighborhood between five and 600 people. Probably all those soldiers that weren't currently on duty somewhere in and around the city were there. That praetorium would be the center open area of that, uh, of that building where the Roman governor resided at. That is where he was brought into led into, dragged into.
And we know that the Caesar, the emperor, the military leader of Rome was led into a praetorium outside the city. Yet here we have Jesus led into a praetorium. We would have the one who thinks they are divine led into the praetorium to be prepared for the triumph. And then we have the one that truly is divine led to a much different situation. Whereas the emperor or that military leader would have been led into the praetorium outside the city, would have been praised the entire time, we find that Jesus is led into this place and he is mocked completely for who he is. We had found, as we discussed, that this, there was the ritual of cleansing that occurred to the Caesar, whereas Jesus himself received a beating, unlike any other. We find that Caesar himself was... The Caesar, the emperor, the military leader was clothed in that robe of Jupiter, beautiful and pristine, taken from the temple, placed around his carefully around his shoulders. And we find in verse 17 that it says, they dressed him up in purple. We find from our other Gospels that it is a Roman soldier's robe. Not clean and pristine, but sweat-soaked, dirty, foul. Not fit for divinity, yet placed about Jesus Himself. As opposed to the robe that was at the temple of Jupiter in this beautiful and purple and deep and in color and embroidered with gold, Jesus has this sweat-soaked robe, cloth of a soldier. I might even argue that representation of the sin that he will be bearing. Whereas the emperor is clothed in something pristine to show his divinity, Jesus himself is clothed in something foul and dirty to show what He is taking to the cross. Then they do the further dishonor to Jesus, and it says, and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on Him. Not a garland or a wreath woven of olive leaves or myrtle branches, but of thorns. Again, the imagery is of what Jesus is bearing to the cross. What I would say Jesus is bearing to His ultimate enthronement. This is a triumph that is occurring unlike any other. And it is not lost on the believers in Rome. They can see the relationship, the, the, the transposition of things that are happening here. Clearly. That wreath that was placed around the emperor's head laid carefully upon his head with great honor was to represent the victory that he represented for the realm of the Roman Empire. In turn, the horrible twisted thorns that are pressed into Jesus' head would represent those things that he is bearing in ultimate victory over sin. 
Not treated as divinity, but treated, Jesus is being treated as the worst of us. Whereas the emperor was treated as the best of us. The sinful man was treated as the best. And the sinless man took on the garb of the worst. Whereas that crown that was placed on the Caesar's head was given as a sign of victory, they see the twisted crown of thorns as a sign of loss and death. Caesar would have been given, the emperor would have been given a scepter of precious metal that would show his authority and sovereignty. And what is Jesus given? They give him a reed, mocking, joking, hitting him with that reed itself. This is Jesus' scepter of the earth. And they're beating him with it. Certainly something they would have not done to the emperor. Jesus being treated as one. No, he's treated in the way that sinners should be treated. That reed and mockingness that they give him. They would say that it symbolized that he had no authority and no sovereignty. And the whole time Jesus is silent. Look at Isaiah chapter 53. Probably isn't even in your notes, but one can't help but go there when we talk about these passages. We'll start. We'll start in verse five because I'm at the pulpit and I can start there if I like to. So that's where we're gonna go. It says, But he was pierced through for our transgressions. And I'm gonna stop here for a moment. I do apologize to John Weathersby for next week because I'm gonna tread a little bit on the ground that he's gonna cover. Uh, but he will have much more time for me than me to do it because I'm in a different section. But it says in verse 5, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. We cannot help but see this happening here. This representation the contrast between what happens with a Caesar who is seen as divine and what the true divinity, the true incarnate God on earth, what is seen there. The difference of treatment, verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Remember, at any given time, Jesus in his divinity could have called down a legion of angels, yet that was not what he was here for. That was... Not what he was to do. We see that when he stops Peter. 
Jesus is always on the way to the cross. The way, hadas in Greek, the way to the cross. Always on the way to the cross. Silent before the shears, and he did not open his mouth. The, it says there in verse 18, we can't forget this. If we were to look at these passages in, in depth, right, 16 through 20, we'd find that this is the exact point of what is being said here. What the author is trying to say, it says, and they began to acclaim him, hail king of the Jews. They meant it as derision, but what it was was true. They didn't see him as the king of the Jews, yet he was the king. Those believers in Rome who are hearing this know that he is the king. The king of the universe. The Lord of lords. The king of kings. Being treated like this. This is his coronation ceremony. This is his imperial triumph that looks far different than the false imperial triumph of a man. This is the truly God, truly man being coronated into his position on the throne at the right hand of the Father. This is what it looks like for him to bear the weight of sin, of the sin of all who would believe in him upon himself. This is what it looks like. And it is not missed by those believers in Rome. I hope that you're not missing it. Whereas the Caesar would travel on the Via Sacra, the sacred way, Jesus himself travels on what is referred to as the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering. The false god goes on this way that has, been that has been inaugurated by men. The true god goes on the way that has been inaugurated by God. Caesar would go and end at that temple of Jupiter with sacrifices and dedications of other things, of false sacrifices. Jesus himself would be the sacrifice when he goes to the temple at Golgotha, at the place of the skull, where he goes to that sacrificial place. Whereas Caesar himself travels through the city to the temple, Jesus is led out of the city, away from the temple. That place that was made into a den of robbers, he is taken away from that to the place where only the cursed and the executed are to be led to. Completely opposite of what we see in an imperial triumph. We see in the imperial triumph a godless man exalted as God. An evil emperor praised as a savior. Those believers in Rome would have seen what is happening here. They would have seen what is going on, the false praise of Jesus that the soldiers are doing. They would have seen what it meant by the fact that there was a sweat-soaked, faded, purple soldier's cloak thrown upon his shoulders. The crown of thorns that was laid upon his head or pressed upon his head. 
they would have known the difference between the Via Sacra that the emperor traveled upon and the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering that Jesus went upon. They would have known that the emperor was going to the praise of man and Jesus was traveling on the way of suffering to the wrath of the Father. All the symbolism that is going with it, with him. They would have known when they heard about the reed as the scepter that it was the reed that was given to the one that was truly God and truly man, the one that had true authority and true sovereignty, the one that had the only authority to give his life and take it up again, the one that had the true authority to pay for the sins of the many. They knew that the enthronement of Christ would not end at the temple of Jupiter, but that his triumph took him to the place of the skull. They knew that Jesus was the true king. Look at this curious passage in John chapter 19, if you would, which is where part of the title of the sermon comes from. We'll start at it's probably it has four up there, but in reality we'll start at uh, 19 verse 1. This is John's as John's witness to what occurred. We read, we read in one, it says, Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. Verse 2, and it says, And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. Three, and they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and give him slaps in the face. Something they would never do to the the Roman emperor. Verse four, Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. One more time before the Jewish authorities. One more time. There is nothing wrong with this man. We read in Matthew. Yeah, Matthew where Pilate's wife says, don't do no more to this man. I've had horrible dreams about what's happening to this righteous man. Pilate, one more time, taking him out. I find no fault in this man. Look, I scourged him. This should satisfy your bloodlust. Jesus then came out in verse 5. Just getting chills just thinking about this passage. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Now pause here for a second. Jesus comes out as the king. Jesus comes out in the royal garb of the servant king. Jesus comes out in the royal garb that will be associated with him as the king of the universe. Jesus is presented before his creation as the king presented before his creation by a pagan non-believer. Pilate will say these words in mocking tones, but they are the true words, if there ever was true words that are spoken. He says, as he brings them out in the robe, in the crown of thorns, Pilate said to them, Behold the man! I will tell you there has never been a man like this. This is the man. This is the only man that matters. 
for us. This is the same man that Peter knew on the sea when the storms were about them who stood up when Peter's, when the disciples said, don't you care that we are perishing? That we are in the process of perishing. And Jesus stands up and calms the wind and He makes the sea like glass. What is their immediate reaction? They are terrified of the man. They are terrified and they say these words which is lost in our English translations. They will say in the Greek, it would, it would translate that the, like this. It says, what type of man is this? This is the man who Pilate has presented before. The king of the universe going to his enthronement in a Roman, in an imperial triumph unlike any that has ever been seen. The only true triumph that there matters for us. Jesus, truly the man. The only one who could do what he did. As Jim was talking in our Sunday school class today, the only one that matters. The only one that could do for us what we could not do for ourselves. The only one that could live the life we couldn't live and die the death we couldn't die. Not the false god of the Caesar or the emperor or the general, but the true God, the one who could pay the debt that no one else could pay. The true king that shows true nobility, that shows true divinity in what he does. Philippians chapter 2. In contrast, we have the emperor, the Caesar, the military general, depending on which time frame you're in, that is propped up, that is served, that is exalted, that is treated as a god. In contrast, we have the incarnate God. We have the incarnate Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. We pick up on what's referred to as the Christ hymn, we'll pick up in chapter five, uh, uh, chapter 2, verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, of a slave, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And what happens? Because of what Jesus does. Remember, when we read about He suffered in the flesh, it means He died in the flesh. Right? It says in there, became obedient to death on the cross. And then it says in 9, For this reason God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, and of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I hear the name of Caesar and it means nothing to me. When I hear the name of Jesus before that throne, I will not be able to stand. Jesus is the only one that matters. All these other kings and emperors and things that passed before mean nothing to me. 
Jesus Himself is the only thing that matters. Jesus Himself is the One who is above everyone. Who is above everything. Of whom the world was created and everything increased. Created of Him, by Him, and through Him, we find in Colossians. He is the true noble King. He is the man. So where does that leave us? I will tell you right now, people, there are only two types of people in this world. Those who believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior and those who don't. Those on the way to hell and those who are not. That is it. There is no middle ground. There is no Hindu way to heaven. There is no Mormon way to heaven. There is no Muslim way to heaven. There is none of those pathways to heaven. There is no worshiping a president way to heaven. There is no rich way to get to heaven. There's no way you can pay yourself to heaven. There's no way you can fly yourself to heaven, sail yourself to heaven, take a train to heaven. There is only one way, and that is Jesus Christ Himself. That is it. If you don't recognize that true king that Pilate brought out before them and said, this is the man, you are in trouble with eternal damnation. You will be found in your sins for an eternity because we are never-ending souls going to a never Never ending souls, never dying souls going to a never ending eternity. You must come to grips with that. You can play around with your sin all your life, and you will stand before that throne, and you will know Jesus as Lord and Savior. You will also know Jesus as the one who damns you to hell, the one who offered himself as payment for your sin, and yet you denied it. You must come before the throne. You must come to Jesus. You must bow down before Him and know Him as your Lord and Savior. It is the only way. There is no other way. There is no workspace way. There is no working on this church way to heaven. There's no working on another church way to heaven. There's no paying for somebody's education way to heaven. There's no giving somebody a car way to heaven. It does not exist, people. This idea of works-based religion is damnation to all of us. We must throw it away. We must recognize that any good works that we do are only found through Christ Himself, prepared beforehand for us, Ephesians 2.10. I'm sorry to get out of my soapbox, but it's so important because there's so many people that we know are friends of ours, family of ours, that are in danger of eternal damnation. Do they not realize what they are playing with? They are playing with eternal fire where God's grace will be eternally gone from them, where there will be nothing but their sin in their life and punishment. Oh, I long for the day that I am before the throne and the embarrassment of the sins of my life are revealed before me and then they are taken away, never to be seen again, that I could praise my Savior and say, glory to God for what you have done. This is the man. I could praise Him for the rest of my days. That is what heaven is, to know my Savior and what He has done for us. But oh, to you that do not know him. I pray for you. I pray that we, every time we go to a funeral, that we are sad for those that don't know Jesus. That we are disturbed for those that don't know Jesus. That we recognize that that is somebody that has gone to the grave, that has gone to eternal damnation, that we are not comfortable, that we don't sleep that night, that we toss and turn, realizing that maybe we should have said more about it to them. Maybe we should have put our pride aside because. As we learned in Sunday school class today, that pride is that thing that prevents us from doing things. Maybe we should set that pride aside and maybe we should go and tell them who Jesus is. Tell them about the man. The only one that matters. Instead of getting wrapped up in CNN and ESPN or all that kind of stuff, maybe we should get wrapped up in this. 
we, we, well, let's go, let's, say, let's have the Bible tell us. Let's go to John chapter 8. God's words are far better than mine. John 8. <clears throat> and I apologize for the two men that I met with yesterday because we talked about this, but I warned them that this was coming, so... Let's go to 8.28. We'll start there, and we'll finish somewhere around there. So Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. What happens? Verse 30, as he spoke these things, many came to believe him. 31, so Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. As we spoke about in Sunday school class today, if we continue in obedience, ever increasing obedience to Jesus, and what does it say in 32? And you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Of course, we get the protest. Verse 33, they answered him, We are Abraham's, Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. Jesus sets us free from that. To be enslaved to Jesus is to be free in Jesus. Before, we were dead in our trespasses and our sins. But now we are found alive in Him. Our King, with a crown of thorns, with a soldier's sweaty, dirty robe, that is our King. Not the false King of the world. Not the false King that's dressed up in the things that the world finds important. But we have a king that dressed himself in our sins and took them to the cross and bore the Father's wrath so that we wouldn't have to. You see, for believers, this is the closest to hell we will ever get, is here. For non-believers, this is the closest of heaven you'll ever be. This is the best there ever be. There is no better. It goes far downhill from here. I would pray that all of us in here do never hear those words at the day of judgment that say, I know not who you are. Those must be horribly terrifying words to hear. I can't even imagine the immense loss that would be felt right at that moment. But remember this, never dying souls going to never ending eternity. But we had a king, a man, the man, the prophet, the priest, the king, and Jesus. That his humiliation was our victory. That his way of suffering was our prize. That we are lifted up because he was lifted up. That he is our only way of salvation. I would pray that all of you know that. Know that he is the only way. Let's pray. God, thank you for... Thank you so much for our visitors today. I'm, I'm so glad that, our, that our, our partner church from North Carolina was here. I was so glad that they could, 
they could join us for Sunday school class, that, that we're going to have the special music they provide, that they are here to, in our pews. We've had such a great relationship with them. It is with great sadness that, uh, that we probably won't see them in this capacity again, but I hope that we will continue our relationship, that we can get together. But please be with them while they're here.